This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, how easy is it to fall for wildfire misinformation? Any misinformation, for that matter. Kelsey Campbell, executive producer of The Shift, tells us about her family's experience escaping from the wildfires in Kelowna and how one social media post fooled many people. Handy Andy Barrar takes a deep dive into e-bikes and their complicated future. He tells us if their batteries will become a problem and if you should hop on the trend of getting an e-bike. The pedal assist part is really cool. John Pabin, a sustainable author and speaker, helps us understand how companies deceive us with greenwashing and more. All of this on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Over the weekend, this weekend, uh, and also up in Yellowknife too, but more concentrated and um, immediate was Kelowna, West Kelowna, and an urgent crush of need of info. And what happened was, is that fire that was west of West Kelowna, and it grew basically tenfold in 24 hours. It went from, hey, this could be a problem to get out now. And with everything on Facebook, no info. We have one of our family members who is very much in it and very much went through the experience of family, a couple different arms of the family, and the and and everybody having to go through all of this kelsey campbell is the executive producer of the shift and you might recognize kelsey from such episodes as game showy uh but here we're, we're not uh, here to have necessarily that that kind of playful conversation kelsey thank you for popping in appreciate you yeah glad to be here guys i feel um, like there's probably some way we can make this playful tastefully but yeah, you know, we could try. Maybe not. Some music bed. Probably yeah. unlikely. Um, the uh, oh, I hear I can make a playful right now. Uh, your mom has a wicked bar in her house. Is her house okay? Because let's protect the bar. Most important. Yeah. Bars okay. The previous owners uh, were were quite elderly, who she bought it from, and they were actually there for the home buying experience and the home inspection, which is really unusual. But the the previous owner of the house, his name was Bob, so we still call it Bob's Bar. He cared very deeply for his house, and oh, nice. it is a sacred space, and we call it Bob's Bar. And uh, this is what is absolutely wild about the way that this wildfire moved and the fact that it felt like it was coming from every direction back on Thursday night of last week. My mother is located in West Kelowna and we were very, very concerned about her being evacuated. She still has not been evacuated where she is located, but that time we just didn't know how it was moving. And then the next thing I'm seeing is my sister over in Kelowna, way the heck away across the lake. She's evacuated come Friday morning because as I think most of Canada is aware, the fire jumped the lake and so now she has evacuated to my mom's house in West Kelowna that we were first concerned about. Mm. Uh, so I I know very, very much what people have experienced throughout the Thompson Okanagan, through the Shushwap, through Kamloops, um, and previous to us, 
things like uh, the massive fire in Fort McMurray where you are just desperate for any information. If your house is standing, if your neighborhood is there, uh, the best evacuation routes, where your evacuation center is, everyone just wants some kind of information in any direction. Um, and what is crazy about the timing of of Meta and other platforms blocking news sites, in, including our radio stations, right, from posting on on these on the end of these platforms, is you have to just go based on what civilians are posting um, for your information, and that's when things get really really scary. Uh, mm-hmm. because there just there wasn't there's not in general a lot of information in those moments right like we well, just kind of have to wait and and people who are posting are are afraid themselves so we'll get to that part here in a couple of seconds i want to try to explain the geography of Kelowna. you have to and i'm I, hopefully i'll do it justice and correct me kelsey if if i get it wrong is the the thing about Kelowna, the okanagan lake there is is kind of in the middle and it's this sort of tall skinny lake and um, it's not like skinny, skinny, but it's not hugely wide either in comparison to its length. North-south. It's long north-south. And in the bottom left corner of that, if you picture it in your mind's eye, is West Kelowna. And it's not really Kelowna, but it's sort of across the bridge and up the hill, and it's this, its own beautiful community. On the right-hand side, on the bottom right corner and kind of partway up the lake, is Kelowna as we know it. And that's the distinction between the two is that fire came in on the left side, sort of skirted along the top and then got to right to the shores of the lake and then hopped the lake. Now I don't want to diminish the size. I mean, it's a big lake, but at the same time, I just, for the, the North South length is, is much longer just for shape. Yeah. And where, so where, where it was located, like where, where it kind of, when we talk about jumping the lake, it's, there were heavy, heavy winds at that portion of the lake. It's just over two kilometers wide at its widest kind of across between Kelowna and West Kelowna. It's, it's between four and five kilometers wide just to help kind of paint that picture. Yeah, that does help. Thank you for that. And so this is where it started to jump. And I was communicating with you that night because you were helping us out here to make sure we had updated info. Getting updated info for us here was even difficult. Um, and the cool thing about the media is that, you know, even though we all compete for uh, audience every day, uh, access to information is is in emergencies is very readily available to, to help each other out. And But we couldn't go. And I know that even here, some people here that were looking out for friends in Kelowna, you know, they were going on their habit to Instagram and to find out that the global site was not available on Instagram, at least to Canadians. It is to other people from other countries, as crazy as that is. And so it does beg the question, of course, there's a conversation about Medicals, there's the conversation about about um, our habits, and then there is you know, this notion about getting instant info versus reporting. Now, reporting journalistic standards are so incredibly important and i've said that many times the thing about a tweet is that there's no standards to what somebody decides to share on the internet and sometimes it's incredibly insightful and sometimes it's like a graffiti tag on a mailbox you don't know what you're getting and that was really really apparent in this and you went through that yourself yeah i i'm the person who 
comes to you guys and says, hey, it's it's more important to be right than first when it comes to this information. Let's make sure we always have it right. Um, but when you are swept up in something like this and it is emotional, and again, the feeling is desperate. Um, where my sister's house is located in Kelowna, there was fire all all around it. So we're just looking for any any tidbit of information to show that that house is still standing. Um, and you're willing to try to look for that anywhere. Additionally, I was looking at the Shushwap fire. Um, Scotch Creek is is a tiny little town that is very, very close to my heart. Grew up camping there every single May long weekend. Before I, I well, and I was in the womb with my mom, my parents have been going. And our group has grown to more than 100 people that go every single year to Shushwap Lake Provincial Park. And I was keeping a close eye on any of the updates that were coming up on the Shushwap community pages there, trying to just find out what was happening. And I ended up feeding into misinformation in my immediate circle and not not on the air, not in, in a news element, not spreading it on my own social media pages, but there was absolute panic on Friday night. The, the fire was spreading and on some of these public Facebook pages, people were were making comments and posting pictures of just structures on fire. And the comments that were following was Scotch Creek it's is gone. It's all gone. Which let's clarify right now it's not. Let's just do that so we don't scare no. anybody as well. Super important. Yeah. So so this is what what you're reading and you th- there's there's people who did not evacuate. There's people who are on the lake in boats and they're taking videos and they're making these claims. And it, it, I could see when it, everything is intense, everything is emotionally heightened. You are a resident of this place or you're someone who frequents, you're, you're a tourist there who happens to have a boat. It is emotional seeing these sites in person and you can get really swept up in it. So I don't even know if it was really intentional misinformation. People were hearing explosions and jumping to some conclusions. So there were statements like the Scotch Creek gas station has exploded. And then people saying, are you sure? And others going, yes, I heard it from this distance away, but they didn't see it with their own eyes. But you can see how you hear things. it didn't, just to be clear. It didn't. Again, it didn't. And so when people were reaching out to me and asking, you know, how have I been affected by the fires? I was just saying, you know, this is a place that's really, really close to my heart. I've spent a lot of time there. And I said, and it's gone. And the next morning I woke up and there are pictures of the gas station intact and the local store intact and the provincial park completely untouched. Um, maybe not completely untouched at this point when you go to BC wildfires um, there's an app and it is a really good good resource to see where the fire perimeter is. The only trouble is they aren't able to update it with a great deal of frequency. So you're looking at this thinking the fire hasn't spread to a certain point, but due to intense, intense smoke, uh, they can't fly over and update this perimeter. So that's where you start jumping to some conclusions until it's updated and then you see, oh, okay, that area wasn't even within the fire zone. So I was telling people specific buildings that I thought had completely burnt up because there were videos that people, and again, they're excited about what they're seeing and they're emotional. They're taking videos and straight up saying, this community hall is gone. It is completely burnt. doesn't exist anymore. And then you found out the next day when they updated the fire perimeter, the fire didn't actually get near that community hall. Mm -hmm. And this is what's really tough when we're all just kind of feeding off of 
secondhand, thirdhand, or straight up guesses. Well, and this is the incredible importance of standards, right? I mean, like you said, it's more important to be accurate than it is to be first. And we've seen this in different kinds of media outlet, media outlets where someone just races to get information out and then it gets shared and it's wrong. Uh, you know, and some people might believe, well, we can update it later, but they don't ever get to it. And this is where we get ourselves into a bit of a pickle here. We verifying and getting things out there. Let's just be clear and maybe call it out for what it is. Um, in the Okanagan, you know, there's no, you know, there, we have global Okanagan there, the, the gang that does that, but would they have even been working at that time? And I, I know the answer to the question, but I'm asking for the sake of conversation. Um, would, would, even if it was accessible on, on Instagram, were, were those folks even working? They were. Yeah. 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 They were the, the challenges. And this is where we are. So uh, we have become so reliant on these platforms and even for accessing, or especially for, if we talk about generations, if we're talking, you know, millennial on the radio, most millennials will tell you they get their news from social media. That's where they're getting it. And so now when you're, you're suddenly in this desperate need and this hunger for it, and you're used to having your fingertips and you can find whatever you want in a second's notice, we can't get that in emergency situations like this, especially when a fire is ripping through major cities and they're dealing with numerous residential areas and structures. They just cannot be informing the media or the public as quickly as they would like because they're out there trying to stop stop the beast. Yeah. And we, we're so accustomed to just, you know, you want to know something right now? Look at your phone. You can get it right now. Well, and what do you do when you when you see it and you're like, that can't be real. So you then you go to your global news site or whatever and you, oh, that is real. Right. So, I mean, that that's a real piece of our experience. Now, there is some irony to all of this in, in the world of of broadcasting through the course of the fire and getting information like that. It's integral in today's world that we have this bit of a backup plan of proper online distribution because um, transmitters burn down, turns out. And that causes problems for local broadcasts too, because this was another thing that happened. Yeah, this is this is just incredible. The the amount of of work, obviously, I think number one have to say, uh, it is truly incredible the sacrifice that firefighters are making really across our country right now. And um, year after year, it just it's more and more profound. Hundreds of of firefighters from different departments have come into the Okanagan, and I know that. Uh, People are, are rushing up to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories as well. So firefighters, first and foremost, are first responders, the police officers that are putting up roadblocks and getting people out safely. Um, they, are, they, get, they get the nod for sure. Um, and then we look to our reporters who are also pulling incredible shifts, trying to get as much information out as possible. Um, and and in these just wicked scenarios where you are are trying to get the answers, but there are roadblocks, there are many uh, many many risks that they're facing to try to get these stories. Um, it really is it's it's incredible. Um, and then we've got our global reporters on the ground, and Global Okanagan ends up going off the air because the transmitters where are the transmitter towers 
that puts out those broadcasts uh, to the public, they end up getting swept up as part of that wildfire as well. So uh, you will see if you're looking for global news updates out of Global BC, it's Global BC that's feeding those feeds right now. Uh, even though we have all of these resources on the ground, you still we couldn't we couldn't outrun the the wildfire with our transmitter towers. Yeah, and to take a second to acknowledge all of the local broadcasters, we don't have radio channels in Kelowna um, who, who worked. I mean, I know a couple of radio people that, I mean, they were in on weekends late at night just get, getting having the conversation going and, and doing a great job. And that, that, you know, just for the sake of acknowledging their hard work, too, uh, very well done. It's it's a scary notion. It's compression, right? It's the fog of war, if you will. We heard this in Maui, our conversations about Maui. No info. In Maui, the cell networks went down. Right. There was conversation about tsunamis and they should use the tsunami sirens. Well, people are trained in Maui. When you hear the tsunami sirens, you go to high ground. Well, guess where the fire was? So that's why they defended not using the tsunami sirens in Maui. So there are there has to be uh, um, multi-level access to these things. And it was proven in this. While I I personally find our habit to turn to Instagram and Facebook to be the first solution for news to be more indicative of our habits of social media than it is access, but it's access point. And that, and that's incredibly important for us to be aware of is that we prove it was proved in Maui cell networks burn and go down. It was proved that, you know, sirens don't always work. So when you need to get access in any way you can, you've got to find it some way. Did you get the alerts on the phones? Cause one of the texts that came in, Kelsey says, um, did they notify people with the, uh, like the sim- similar to the Amber alert alerts on the storm alerts on the phones. There were emergency alerts, but what's really interesting is uh, it, it did depend on some of your cell networks and I think your location. I received some other members of my family didn't receive those, but received others. Um, I don't actually have up to date information on how it was decided who got what alerts, but in the early days uh, I think, I think most everyone in BC was getting the the alerts or in the interior anyway of saying, here are the neighborhoods that need to be evacuated now because that mm-hmm. fire turned and it was right now you need to get out. Well, the last uh, report really is that, um, you know, more than 50 houses, almost 60 as they go. Some of the more torn up areas they haven't even been able to get to yet. Um People are able to go home in some areas, so there is some good news to be had. That is getting reported as well. And, um, you know, just an overall cautiousness about it. Uh, everyone's okay. The family's okay. Your sister's place was okay. So far, it's okay. In um, just talking about people sharing or guessing or even making wide statements like, this neighborhood was wiped out, it creates a lot of mental anguish, and that's why... I've been so impressed with the emergency officials in the Okanagan and how they've approached this. They don't want to jump to conclusions and just say this road was hit because anyone in Fort McMurray will tell you how crazy wildfire behavior is where it might hit one house, three houses are missed, or it might hit six houses, one house is left standing. So um, it's a lot of people commenting online, like just stop guessing or stop suggesting my house is gone. If you don't know for sure, if you don't have picture proof of it in the case of my sister's home, her husband tried to get back to the house today. It's still the road that they're on is, is completely shut down. There's still risk there. And a police officer did confirm that their house was still standing, but did make the comment that they couldn't say as much for their nearby neighbors. Yeah. That's a pretty gut wrenching update. That is. That is gut wrenching. Um, 
maybe it's a maybe it's a I don't know if we're, we're having here Kelsey to be honest I don't know if we're having a conversation about media or if we're having a conversation about humanity and drama and um, maybe recklessness I, maybe it's both maybe they're distinctly different I don't know but I, I can't help but sit with both and the importance of, of both to be monitored in this uh, could we have a responsibility in this you want to know what the word responsibility means it means this it means not terrifying somebody for no reason it means the opportunity to save somebody's life if you can and um, and uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned out of all this that's for sure any takeaways for you particularly that that really sit with you because you know I mean you you had a the hard part for you and and I'll say for this you have to understand Kelsey is she's an organizer and she cares for everybody else she's like uh, kind of a mother hen that way and um, but you had to watch this from outside of that zone and that that must have been difficult for you helpless almost I think you've made a good point about this is a hard one this conversation I think is I I'm I'm glad that we're having it to talk about what the experience is like of just seeking this information and the emotional things that are are attached to big events like this especially when you've got your people or you're involved in it and that's where I don't think most people there'll always be the scammers or the or the you know whatever the villains in these stories I don't think most people set out to deceive or to spread min- misinformation it just shows the devastation on top of devastation that can happen when you behave and react emotionally in emotional situations. When you talk about being rational and what you're posting, I don't even know if they, they've realized that that they're making some mistakes there. And now I'm sitting in my guilt. And I told you I was sheepish and ashamed because I straight up texted you. I responded mm-hmm. to you saying, yeah, the, the, the campground that I grew up camping at is gone. Yep. And that was a straight up lie. And I was yep. embarrassed to admit that I, I just, I was so emotional about the whole thing. And that's, it's just not responsible. No. And then well, you had to sit with my pain, right? And yeah, you probably well, told somebody. And then, well, we were on you know, the air at the time, but we needed to verify it. And that's where the professionals need to do the professional work. And that's where that standards thing comes back again. It comes full circle. It keeps doing that. Well, I'm glad everybody's okay. Um, I, I think it's a really amazing that you share this part of your experience of the story. And um, there's a lot of rebuilding that's going to need to happen. And hopefully the fires um, do uh, uh, tone down so um, we can close out this summer season and, and move on. I think there's an awful lot of people doing that. Kelsey Campbell, thank you for being here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for what you do. This is The Shift Podcast. I want you to imagine a little boy who's hanging out with his grandparents and his favorite TV show comes on TV. And he gets so excited and he gets up and he wants to dance to it. And it sounds like this. Yeah. Handy Andy Barack. Big fat jazz hands. For the record, it was a movie, not a TV show. <laughs> Disco Dancer, the movie. It was a Bollywood movie, yeah, and um, and uh, and it was uh, you always watch it with your grandparents. You loved it, and that song always makes Andy happy. Thanks for being here, buddy. Oh, my pleasure, Shane.
Um, handyandymedia.com is where you go to connect with all things Andy. Do me a favor and follow his YouTube channel. You'll get alerts when all of the, uh, all of the new videos are posted. Or you can also go to shiftheads.ca and Andy posts them up there too. Uh, video, bikes, all these things. Um, there's lots going on in the world of e-bikes today. I had shared my, before we got to the break there and everyone might not have heard it, but I shared my, my impress feeling of when I saw pedal assist bikes the first time. You feel like you're kind of riding a rocket ship. And, and what, some what electric year bikes. Was that? What year? What year? Yeah. Did you first experience an electric Probably bike? Probably eight or 10 years ago. Okay. Yep. That seems about right. That's when they came on the market. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was the Ride Guy TV show. They were doing these live reports from a bike shop. And they, it, it was super fun. Some electric bikes today have really become, now you're lazy and you don't need to pedal anymore bikes. Yeah. And so I struggle with that because now we've just put batteries on something that used to be good for us. Now, some people just use it for a little bit of help. Some people use it for a rest. Some people keep pedaling. I don't know. Everyone's got their thing. I think it's really exciting when it's pedal assist. I think that's really great. I think it's a great add-on to the humanity of it all. So not only the bikes, but also the batteries on the bikes. Where do you want to go? Yeah, well, I'm kind of with you on this one. I got a kind of this like love-hate relationship with electric bikes because you know, biking was a great form of exercise. And now when, with pedal assist, if you ever try it, it's pretty amazing because they're usually with the bikes, they'll have different levels of pedal assist, like one to five. And when you're on level five, you're basically just moving the pedals to keep the bike moving. Like you're doing no work at all. And what I just reviewed, and people can watch this review, uh, shiftheads.ca, or you can go to my website, handyandymedia.com is a bike from a company called Avaton. It's the Adventure 2 e-bike. What makes this one different is this has this bike, this electric bike, has a fat tire and front suspensions. It's basically an electric mountain bike, Shane. So I took this into the trails, and boy, was it fun. Say you're going up a mountain. You know, when you're mountain biking, you got to be in good shape. You got to pedal up the mountain, then you would go yeah. down real fast. Well, gravity and- is very present, though, isn't it? It is, but when you got an electric mountain bike, holy cow, you don't feel like pedaling? Just hit the throttle or put the pedal assist to number five, and you're flying. This bike had a 750-watt motor, and just for context, the other e-bikes that I reviewed, I think the max was about 500. So even on the street, this thing would just fly, and it, it has a throttle. Like you mentioned, the pedal assist, but there is a throttle button on there too, so you don't even have to pedal. You just hit that throttle and boom, the acceleration was impressive. And I'm going down these trails and you can see it on the video. I'm going really fast. I felt like a kid again, except you don't have to be in good shape or, or any shape at all with this electric bike. So I, I don't know. It's like at one point it makes it accessible to people that might not be in the best of shape to mountain bike. But at the same time, you're probably not going to get in shape when you have power literally at your fingertips. Did you put a hockey card in your spoke so it could sound no. like a motor? No, no. but, you no. know, if you see these bikes, they got these LED lights you can put on the wheels. And, yeah. you know, it, it illuminates it, which is good for safety. You know, if you're riding at nighttime, you want to be visible. Um, and this bike, it has brakes. But when you hit the brakes, it has brake lights on the back. 
and turn signals. So when you turn, you can actually show that, that you're going left and right. It was pretty impressive. You know, you could use it as a road bike. You could use it as a mountain bike. And with that fat tire, you can go on gravel and different types of terrain. But, you know, it's like, are they even going to make traditional bikes anymore, Shane? Or yeah. is this it? Is this it? Yeah, I don't know. I, well, these are so expensive, though. They're more than many cars, used cars. Uh, so that's the thing. It does bring up a couple of things for me is that they work so hard to create bike lanes in some places, right? And these bikes are wildly dangerous when it comes to if they're running full throttle through bike lanes and there's pedestrians or uh, people on normal bicycles there, now we have a wide discrepancy. And when you look at what is a scooter or a moped or whatever, you know, uh, motorcycles, it's based on the CCs of the engine. And it'll be yeah. interesting to see what comes when it comes to traffic rules of when uh, an electric bike is too powerful for a bike lane and you yeah. must be wearing a helmet and drive in normal traffic like you would a scooter. Because if you took like a scooter like your Vespa and you took it into the bike lane, you get yourself in trouble, right? And so th this is this does maybe a conversation for another day. I can We can pin it if you like, but it does create a whole new set of problems because like you said, I mean, you are a rocket ship. Yeah, especially with bikes that have a big motors because they're capped to go at a max speed of 32 kilometers. But the acceleration, like I had never experienced that kind of acceleration on a bike. And it's just like, if you have an e-bike, you can't really ride with friends who don't have one because you could just like at any point in time catch up or just, you know, not pedal as much as they are pedaling. But he, here's the thing. You know, it, with the, the price of gas, you could actually get some long distances with these bikes that you probably wouldn't be able to do with a traditional bike. Or you maybe if you're using it as a commuter to get to work, you know, you might be too tired if you had a traditional bike. But with one of these pedal assist bikes, now you can get some serious range with little to no effort and extend that range because you're pedaling at the same time. So I, I wonder, you know, it could in certain areas maybe in certain seasons you could replace a vehicle and and get long distances but at the same time what's going to happen to the traditional bike shop when everything's going electric and these have motors in it there's a big movement right now with the right to repair and all these e-bike e-bike manufacturers are saying you know what we don't want the right to repair for these e-bikes because of these big batteries. They're too dangerous. We just want you to recycle the batteries or bring it back to us and we'll fix it. But that really, you know, goes against that whole right to repair movement that we're seeing moving globally. And I hope the e-bike stores of the future and bike shops are going to be able to handle these electric bikes. Well, and uh, yeah, the, I mean, it's about copyright. You know, really, because they don't want anybody looking inside yeah. the batteries really is what it is. And they don't want anyone to have to do certifications on their batteries or, or, or all that stuff. They basically don't want to spend the money to do it. And th this is why I like you said about what happens to the traditional bicycle. And it, it that's where we get lost in it. Right. I mean, now all of a sudden we've created a bunch more stuff that we have to throw out because nobody can fix it. Because once it dies, you can't get it fixed or it costs too much to fix it. And so then now you have. And the thing about technology like these e-bikes is that when the technology gets old and that battery gets worn out, say, it's no good anymore, you have to buy that brand of battery. What happens if yeah. they don't make that battery? That happened to me with my Ryobis, right? My, yeah. my my drills and stuff. Now, I had an entire set of tools that didn't have batteries anymore that you couldn't get. In fact, if you go online, you can find tons of those tools for cheap because nobody has the batteries for them. Are we looking at something like that with bikes? It's concerning. Well, yeah, it's an investment. These bikes are, you know, it costs several thousands of dollars. 
And you have to wonder, or if you bike a traditional bike, that'll last forever, provided that you service it and, and keep it in good condition. So I don't know. I don't know how this is moving. Like when you got mountain bikes that are now e-bikes, like every single type of style of bike now is going electric. And I, 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 I just kind of have this mixed feelings about it because my brother was really into mountain biking and I was thinking if I showed up with one of these, he's like, this is cheating. You're, mm -hmm. you're flying up this mountain. You don't have to be in shape anymore. But at the same time, I'm like, what if you, you know, have a mountain bike in 20, 30 years, maybe you've been on the couch for that time and you want to get back into it. Something like this is going to, it's fun. Like I can't deny well, it. Also, it, is fun. it also could explore, uh, could inspire exploration, right? If you yes. were going to go, uh, out to the mountains, you, you live in Surrey and I'm in just outside Calgary. So, you know, we, we are lucky enough to be close to mountains and whether you're in the Niagara Peninsula or around the escarpment and, and there's all kinds of big, beautiful trails, right? I think of a Niagara Parkway, that trail that goes yeah. all the way along the Niagara River. On a regular bike, you might, you know, get 10 kilometers in a day or whatever. But on an e-bike, you could make that entire loop. Like it would inspire you to. Yeah to explore more. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's one of the beauties of all this, but that's why I get into the pedal assist thing. Did you have, um, did you learn of any limitations on time or distance? I mean, I'm assuming they regenerate in some ways as well, because they must have some regenerative braking and all that. But, um, did, did you, did you discover any limitations on time or did you even get that far? Well, it really comes down to the level of pedal assist. If you're using, because you have to remember, you can turn the pedal assist off and actually pedal like a traditional bike. A very except heavy bike. You, you, you got this big battery on it. That's the only problem. What's interesting is that the batteries are so big. In this bike, it actually has a key, and you could take the battery out. So you could leave, say, the bike in your shed, but take the battery indoors and then charge it and then put it back onto your bike. But like this bike that I'm reviewing, again, people can look at it, shiftheads.ca or handyandymedia.com. It weighs like 75 pounds. Oh, and guess wow. where all the weight is? The weight is that 750-watt motor battery and stuff. Like it is huge. So you're right. You know, if you were going to go camping, you take one of these bikes, say you have a parrot, man, you can get some serious distance and trails probably a lot farther than you could go with a traditional bike um, so you can explore. I, I, I'm I'm very interested to see if people, you know, if this takes off, if people are going to start embracing these electric bikes. What I'd like to see is a modular style where you could have it with the battery. You just take the battery off and just use it as a standalone bike and it supports it that way. So it's kind of a two in one. Um, but the batteries are big and they're heavy. I and mean, that's that's we know this about electric cars as well. And the service is the big question I have, because every local community has a bike shop. Are we going to have bike shops and then electric bike shops in the future, or can it be all consolidated into one shop? Maybe there's jobs as a different kind of bicycle technician that pays more. That could be good, too. But I can tell you this. The batteries are built to look good and sort of like a fairing style yes. fit on the bike, not just here's a battery on a bike. So there's no way you can put any other battery on unless you had that one, uh, at least as far as we know. This is quite amazing. The video is up there. The event and bike looks really good. It's a cool-looking thing. Um, I, I Just quickly before we go here, you had to put it together, though. Did that take long? Yeah, it comes in a box, so you have to actually build it together, which is pretty interesting that you can get a bike in a box and have it assembled within, you know, maybe half an hour. This is the Shift Podcast. 
I'd like to welcome back here to the shift a gentleman that we met a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I guess, maybe a couple, no, not a couple of months ago. Summer can't go by that fast. John Pabin joins us here. Um, John is on the other side of the planet, although he's not really from there, but that's where he is now. Although he wasn't there last week, but he is again. Um, John spent a couple of decades um, in the business of saving the planet, but John's perspective is a little bit different. John's I, this is why I get curious, because this is where we learn, right? Uh, after he left a role with the United Nations, that global look has been a big part of John's life. Um, sustainability, um, Fortune 500 companies, consulting, and so much more. He's the author of a book, Sustainability for the Rest of Us, a Your No Bullshit Five-Point Plan for Saving the Planet. Also, The Great Greenwashing, How Brands, Governments, and Influences Are Lying to You. Now, John, the one thing that we have in common here, I don't work in activism like you do by any means. In fact, I find it uh, quite often quite hypocritical. We've chatted about that. Most activism to me is extremely hypocritical. Um, so, But that you expose that. This is the cool part. This is one of the ways that you subscribe to responsibility is by exposing the hypocrisy of the non-activist activists. Is that a fair ball for you? Uh, yes, absolutely. 100%. I wouldn't even uh, describe myself as an activist. I call myself a pragmatic altruist because I don't think they're doing what they think they're doing. The old activists, you know, hanging off of uh, an oil tanker and putting up a few signs and going to a protest here and there isn't actually making change at scale that we right. like to. So I like to expose that because I don't think I'm the only person thinking this. I think the general public thinks that as well. So mm -hmm. at least letting them know that, you know, they're not going off the deep end. Well, some some basic numbers here. And this is what I've gone through in the last week. I've driven from Toronto to Calgary. We cut through the United States. We went through Chicago um, up to Minneapolis through Fargo back up into Canada. And what I saw there was staggering to me. And, you know, marketing is everywhere. We see it, especially on a drive like that. You see an awful lot of billboards, a lot of advertising. I must acknowledge that farmer who still had a Trump Pence um, sign from 2020 or whatever that was. Um, you know, the, the reality is it's everywhere. Now here in Canada, when it comes to responsibility, they're all over us, right? We go to the grocery store and I can buy my uh, fruit and vegetables, put it in a plastic bag, off I go. My meat comes wrapped in plastic. Off I go. My box of cereal is a box of cereal with a plastic bag inside. Off we go. My potato chips have a plastic bag on them and off we go. But when I get to the till, I'm not allowed to have a plastic bag anymore. I, I'm, I'm not. There, you're not allowed to. I have to pay for it. And in some places you can't even have it unless, of course, I have a polyester bag, which is made of petroleum products that takes 140 times the amount of energy that a plastic bag does. Now, down in the States, all the garbage cans are filled with bottles. There's no recycling. Plastic straws when we go to the, the takeaway, which was really nice, by the way, because paper straws are now sort of the standard here in Canada. And going to the grocery store, there was plastic bags. You know what I didn't have to do when I was at the grocery store? I didn't have to um, put all of my fruits and vegetables in separate plastic bags because I just put them in the basket because then when it got to the till, they went into one plastic bag. That to me is a, a really great example of what you're talking about, right? Like we, we have these sort of these these flags they're almost like a false flag if you looked at war that way they're like this false flag of of i don't know uh the words escaping me of taking an agenda of standing there of, of pretending right and and we're going through this a lot we're seeing it in marketing we're seeing it all over the place so how do we go from you know here in canada where there's one tenth the amount of people in the states where this belief system that oh my god we're all gonna die 
apocalyptic if we don't do this. But then 10 times the people south of the border, the lady at the till looked at us so confused when my son said, oh, we don't have to pay for bags here, do we? So these are the kind of things that are going on and we're not really putting a dent in anything. No, that's exactly right. And I think the word you may have been looking for is performative. It's very performative mm -hmm. activism. That's and I think that's getting worse and worse and worse, certainly. But going back to the the marketing side and recycling is a great example and something I touch on quite a bit. And I want to start off by saying, keep recycling people, like keep doing what you're doing. I think it's been a overall, it's been a great mindset shift that yeah, we've done over the past not, 30, 40 years. And it's, it's not, not a hard solution. lift anymore. It's not at all. But I think the issue comes when people, it works. So, but when the issue comes when people, they do their trash sorting or they pay for their plastic bag, they do all these little things and they go back home, put their, put their feet up and say, oh, I've done my part. I've saved the world. No, you haven't. You've not done uh, anything. It's just a drop in the bucket. If we look at some, some other stats, household recycling only makes up about 10% of all global recycling. The rest, the other ninety, the other ninety percent comes from businesses, and even with that, it's a very small percentage. I think it's forty or fifty percent even gets recycled. So we're not actually doing things at scale, and that's where we are today when it comes to kind of saving the planet. Even though I don't like to use that language, is it's no longer about these individual actions. Although yes, they are important. The problems have become so big that now we need to look at solutions at scale. So trash sorting on your street, putting out your bins, great, but it's not saving the world. When I go to the grocery store now, I've started to, the good part, I guess, is it works. I've got, I've started to learn new habits, right? I remember to keep my bags in the car and I bring some bags in with me and all of those things. I'm very well aware that I have probably hundreds of bags now because of all the times I forgot, which puts me so far behind the curve of efficiency in this notion that it, it really kind of sucks. Um, but to your point, there's activism and taking, I mean, ha make a difference. I mean, recycle it, recycle the bottles. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to recycle and it's, it's not perfect by any means, but it's better than it hitting the trash. So it can't be the end goal. You can't feel like we've arrived. We did it because I recycled my clamshells. No, you didn't. Um, you just, you gave them another shot at life. That's great. But it, the product does deteriorate, quality deteriorates, of course, over time. But I think what, um, the, what's occurred to me when you were talking about that is that we can do all we want and the grocery stores, for example, they now charge us 10 cents, 15 cents, 25 cents for a bag to punish us for using the bags when we can actually go right now in Canada, of course, corn is quite plentiful in, in the produce department and they have very durable plastic bags next to the corn that are more thicker plastic than the grocery bags that you can fill up with your corn and your other groceries with. They're profiteering off this. They're yes. making money because those bags used to be free and they're doing it under the disguise of you have to, so you're responsible. If you don't think that Walmart's not making a profit on their fabric bags or polyester bags, absolutely they are. But then again, they pretend not to be. And this, this marketing spin keeps landing back on the consumer when we don't even know if they're doing anything in the background. That's exactly right. And that's that's pure 100% greenwashing because these large organizations, I think of you know the large supermarket chains around the world, they could very easily change how they operate and how they do business so that you don't need bags at all, right? You see plenty of these stores that have 
kind of a, a zero waste, even though I really hate that term too, uh, setup, right? Where there's no bags, there's no packaging, there's none of that stuff. Or, you know, if you really want to be innovative and actually want to make a difference as a corporation, I don't know, partner with a packaging design firm that'll do compostable sort of stuff, right? So there's things they can do, but you, you hit the nail on the head when you said they're profiting off this, which is what we always have to do. We have to follow the money. And that usually leads us to understand what the actual intention is. The The best example, and probably the first example that exists of, of that sort of greenwashing that people don't even realize is when you go to a hotel and they ask you to hang up your towel. They don't care about you saving the earth. They just want to save money on laundering all of the, uh, all of the towels and bedding. So even as somebody who's in this space that absolutely cares about saving the planet, I get a new towel every day when I go to a hotel because I know they're just trying to, you know, guilt me into them making a profit. So at, the more consumers are aware of this, and I'm absolutely convinced that consumers know this stuff is happening to them now. So it's going to be harder and harder to greenwash. Uh, the more companies will then start to make an actual positive change. And we're starting to see that it's slow going. It's a small segment of corporations, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a new idea to corporations to try to be better and do better with their operations. Yeah, and profitability, I mean I'm a capitalist by all means, go make your money. Just do it with yep. a good conscience, clear conscience. So let me ask you about this. The word that I you probably have a different word. Um I would say it's probably a smarter word than mine, but freemium is the word. Uh freemium is a marketing tactic that I'm aware of that um, they basically sell to you something they were doing anyway. And freemium used to be sort of the, um, you would buy a, say a travel trailer and it would come insulated and then they would put a sticker on it and it would say it's good for winter. So you're getting this freemium insulation upgrade. It was already insulated, just they had never marketed how great the insulation happened to be in that thing. By the way, it's pretty good in the cold. Um, that's freemium marketing. You feel like you're getting... Uh, an upgrade, you're getting something promoted, but at the same time, it was already there. You just might not have known about that. To your towel point, that's what I see there, right? So they're, they're basically taking this freemium notion and reversing it into the other end of it. Well, we're going to wash them anyway. So we're going to make you feel like you're getting a freemium when you save us that money. So that's sort of the reverse of the freemium that's going on. And I think that the businesses are, are using that tactically so much more. And it's it's kind of like when you go to a luxury store and you get your luxury bag, you know, your thick paper wax coated shiny bag to carry um, through the mall because that's part of the notoriety that comes with buying your fancy bag. It's a freemium. It was gonna happen anyway. So tell me what you see there. And all of that is perfectly fine. I, I think it comes with the experience, especially if I go to a luxury grocer, right? I know I'm going to get the nice canvas bag and like you said, be able to parade it around. It, as we talked about the last time, last time we met around Sheehan, and this goes for all corporations, I don't care what you do with your marketing spend. It's your marketing spend to do with what you want, right? You know, however you want to position your business is great. Where I start to take up issue is when you start to wrap yourself in the language of saving the planet in order to market things like freemiums. Your trailer example is a good one where, yeah, it's it was already there. The insulation was already there. It was already obviously good for, <laughs> for cold weather. So if a consumer is going to be so gullible, they think that's an amazing thing, then that's on them. But if they were to start using language around, oh, we're using this special insulation because we know that the... 
icebergs are melting or whatever it might be, then that starts to become an issue because then it goes into unethical marketing. It goes into greenwashing. But other than that, I mean, if a consumer is going to be so silly to fall for these things, that's kind of on them. <laughs> well, yeah, you say fall for it, but I don't think we fall for it. I think we just don't care. I mean, looking at, mm -hmm. the, I went into, we were in the mall shopping for the kids and we we're in one of those big chain, you know, uh, discount clothing stores, right? Fast fashion stores. And it's rammed with people. And people are looking at the prices and they're like, oh, cool, I can get two, I can get three, whatever. And they're doing it and they're buying it and the places fall and the lineup of the till is huge. And I'm looking at this going, we really don't care in any way. We really don't. When it comes to us benefiting, we really don't make the sacrifice. And yet we have this mentality that we're saving the planet because we did the, I put my recycling, my bottle in the recycle bin, right? Or whatever it is that we do. So we are... Um, our own hypocrites in all of this. And that's the part is that I don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg here is are the consumers, the hypocrites first or were, and the businesses talked them into it or was it the other way around that the consumers talk the businesses into it because they're like, Oh, all we have to do is make them feel like they're doing great. And I, I do it in my business. Uh, one of my businesses is called the Banff beard company. And so we sell beard oils and all those different things. So my bottle is glass. My eyedropper is glass. Uh, the, there's rubber on the eyedropper. I can't get away from that hard plastic or, or the rubber. My packaging is cardboard. My craft crinkle paper inside is uh, paper cardboard. And we say that we are, well, on our website, we have all of the info on all the pieces, what can and can't be recycled. But so we claim that we're eco but we actually send it in a box that's bigger than it needs to be because it presents well when you open it. And we even don't even use the waxy cardboard. We just use an ink stamp on white. So we try to keep it simple as we can, but really it's the balance of what I can afford as a business, what makes it sound like we're doing eco green things. And by the way, if you think about it, put it in your recycle bin, people don't care. Cause you know what? They're still shipping that thing from my office to France for beard oil, which I'm sure they can get some great beard oil in France, but they chose mine, right? Yeah, no, it's 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 100% true. And I think in the same sense as with business, there is a sizable portion that they do care. I, I'd hate to write off everybody, but the majority either don't care because they don't understand how it relates to them personally, just like politics. It all has to be personal for you to start to, to take action and to do something about it. Or they're not informed enough around why their choices may be negative choices. Fast fashion, great example, where I, I think people do understand it's not the best choice in the world, uh, but they may not be exposed to all the things that do go on behind the scenes of why it's not the best choice. You just sort of know in the back of their heads it's it's not the, the best choice to do. So when they then see a recycling bin in the store where, oh, the company is making a difference. Uh, it kind of throws them off psychologically and from a marketing perspective. So with that, that's the the company then leading the way to uh, psychologically change how a consumer views that particular company. Uh, but with what you were saying around your own particular product, the beard oils, I don't know. I think we go back to this idea of scale and are you having a negative impact at scale? Probably not. I wouldn't no, come after yeah, you if so. I wasn't if I was an activist, I certainly wouldn't be coming after you. We're not lying uh, either. No, and that's the exact thing. So as long as you don't lie, I think that's where I certainly start to take issue is you can wrap yourself in the language of sustainability. Okay, fine. But are you 
purposely lying to the consumer, to the audience. And that then goes into a whole ethical question. Ideally, what we'd love to see is pure, true transparency and honesty, because I'm a firm believer that consumers don't care that you're perfect or not. They don't want you to be perfect. They just don't want you to lie to them. Mm -hmm. So on your packaging, for example, on the, on the beard oil, being fully transparent and saying, hey, we're trying, but you know what? We can't get away from X, Y, and Z because that's just how things are today. I think consumers will appreciate that, appreciate a bit of honesty. John Pabin is our guest. He's got a couple of books out, Greenwashing and so much more. It's about being responsible. In our world today, we get just so much sidestepping of proper information. So let's talk about a couple of different industries then, if being honest is the thing. I mean, I, you know, through my drive, there was an awful, awful lot of solar farms, right? We get an awful lot of spin on solar farms. Uh, the impact on the ecosystems is very, very hard, right? They um, take gobble up all kinds of farmland and everything else. And then everything that's shadowed beneath these solar farms is not growing and chewing up carbon dioxide like those pieces of the puzzle are not included wind farms those big blades they've just started now to be able to recycle it oh recycling of solar that's another thing um you know so these are things that they're conveniently avoiding right it's lying by omission and i don't know if you saw i believe it's the rivian truck um as you answer this i'm going to confirm that the rivian electric truck and you can go after um you know tesla whatever uh, because of batteries and what's in the batteries and it's better for the environment and all of these bits and pieces that are out there. But when you look at all of the elements involved and the way that it's mined, it's really just kicking the can down the road, plus the grid, plus the where's the power generate, plus, plus, plus. And the new news about Rivian is that by design, uh, it is tearing up tires in as much as uh, 10,000 kilometers so that it's burning through tires so quickly, something with the design is chewing on tires. If you ever watch racing, that's something that happens. And so here's an electric vehicle that's supposed to save trucks, but yet you're using rubber at an astronomical rate as much as 10 times faster. But they're not talking about that. We don't say that part. So lying by emission, John, um, that one for me, I, that, that's almost unforgivable. I, that's that truck example has come up a few times, um, especially on TikTok. People ask me about it, and I'm not too up on it, but I have heard I have heard the examples. So, so absolutely, I suppose my take or my take is: Are we moving the needle in the right direction? So, I know very well that these electric cars, like you said, they there's so many issues with them, especially when it comes to the ethics and the social side of things. So, how it's mined, all the rare earth minerals, all these sort of things. Not to mention, you know. The, the personalities that are at the helm of some of these companies, which we yep. won't talk about. Yep, but very uh, so, well, well said. <laughs> <laughs> so it, are they better, though, than a combustion engine, typical gas guzzling, you know, Cadillac from the 1950s? 100%. So we're moving the needle in the right direction. But as we talked about at the very beginning, are we now putting our feet up and saying, oh, we have an electric car. We've done it. We're good. We shouldn't be, right? Because now we need to be thinking, okay, we're here with electric vehicles. And I remember as a kid way back in the, you know, the 90s, people saying, especially in Southern California, oh, we're going to have fully electric cars on the roads by 1995. Obviously, that never happened. It's not even happening now. But at least we're starting to get there. Now, pretty much every major car company has some sort of an electric vehicle that they're offering to the public. And that's a great thing because now that means that your differentiator as a business, as an automobile company is no longer having an electric vehicle. 
Now you need to think of, okay, what's next? What do we do that makes this even an even better electric vehicle or something that's even beyond that? And I know there are a few companies already exploring, okay, what's beyond electric? What do we do to get rid of some of these problems that currently exist? How do we make an even better, more sustainable automobile? I know it's counterintuitive because there's probably no such thing, but at least now we're we're starting to enter this virtuous cycle where things are being improved upon. So it all comes back to that idea that we talked about at the beginning around recycling. Is what you're doing actually making an impact at scale and moving the needle in the right direction? Or are you just being performative with what it is you're doing to save the planet? Yeah, and how do you ch- how do you uh, checkbox a couple of those, John? Because I mean, you've got um, okay. So somebody actually did this. I'm not going to quote it because I don't know if it was peer reviewed and stuff. But the notion was, you know, the cool part about electric cars is we are taking carbon output out of combustible cars, right? Not combustible cars, combustion engines. <laughs> All cars can combust if they're <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. We just time. don't talk about that. Yeah, right. Um, but so, you know, where the carbon output is changing in this scenario. So that's a plus. But somebody actually went and looked at all of the diesel fuel that's burned by um, the massive amount of minerals that have to go into the batteries um, in uh, trucks and tractors and all the things that go in there. And it's actually quite a delay because the amount that, because it's mined differently. And here's the checks and balances, right? Like, so you've got, we used to have big, massive open pit mines uh, here in Canada with oil sands and then, you know, drilling rigs in the ground for other places, uh, pumping that out of the ground. But now we don't have that so much anymore. We actually just have little holes in the ground and they use steam, but cobalt mines. Whoa. Now we're, now we got lithium mines and cobalt mines. We're back to trucks and tractors again. Right. So you've got one and it's a trade off for the other and you've got one and it's a trade off for the other. And it, I think it really pisses people off because they're like, why do you keep telling me that this is better? I'm we're OK if you just say it puts out less carbon, even though someone's done the calculations now. And it turns out that even some of those things are even debatable, at least on the time frame of how far they go. So when cars started, they weren't great. And so this is a massive shift. This is like the Internet coming in. And I get that. But at the same time, I mean, that that's not even being irresponsible. I mean, that's just flat out hiding things and governments are doing it all over the world, right? Like all of a sudden, and here in Canada, what we go through is the oil and gas in, in Alberta, not cool, not cool, don't do it, but we can put a big new hole in Ontario and mine cobalt, that works, right? How do you check that? Yeah. It's, it's so, because of the things happening at scale, because the problems are so massive and there is, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, sometimes I am, uh, <laughs> but you know, because governments are so good at lying to us about everything that's going on and, and sort of deflecting from what the true issues are, it is very hard to have a check and balance on on what's happening. So it goes back to this idea of, of moving that needle in the right direction. Cobalt mines are not great, but they're better than big oil pits, <laughs> right? So. I think the thing we need to mentally start to realize, and this goes back to that illusion of of companies not needing to be perfect, is there's no such thing as a perfect solution to save the planet either. I don't think we're quite there yet. We don't have the answers. So what does a perfect sort of sustainable future look like is the the mental image we need to start processing. And I think for a lot of people, that image has been pushed as some sort of a, I don't know, an agrarian society with everybody living in, on a kibbutz. And that's not at all what we're talking about, right? We're going to have to change. We're going to have to adapt. The earth is already changing. It's the analogy of being a, a frog in a boiling pot, right? We just, we know these things are happening, but they're happening around us. And so we don't really, we're not really responding to them. 
So I think it's really important that people change their outlook of what it means to save the planet. It's not about perfection because we're never going to get there. Maybe eventually, just not right now. So move that needle in the right direction. Have the cobalt mine instead of the, the oil pits. It's not great. It leaves a really bad taste in your mouth, sure. But uh, hopefully that then moves us to that next bit of iteration where, okay, what's better than a cobalt mine? And then, you know, we start to see these changes happening. And I know there's going to be people listening to this that go, oh, but we don't have time to do any of that stuff. You know, we got to have all this action now. And that's where I take issue with a lot of the activist community is because they want perfection and they think things are an on off switch and black and white. And that's not the case at all. We would love everything to be recycled. Sure. But the infrastructure is not there to recycle things like glass because we got rid of that infrastructure. So is it cost prohibitive to then recreate that infrastructure? Yeah, it is, which is why we don't see it. The same thing with electric vehicles. Until it becomes cost prohibitive to have the bad thing, companies are probably not going to change. Luckily, with the example of automobiles, they are changing because it is becoming sort of cost prohibitive not to have an electric vehicle or to be thinking what is next after electric vehicles because that's what consumers are demanding. The key after this very long-winded ramble is to try to get corporations and all of us as individuals to enter into a, some sort of a virtuous cycle where things start to improve and become better versus just giving into all of this doomism and participating in a system that uh, really doesn't have our best interest in mind. Yeah, doomism. Um, and I, I have to defend, at least in Canada, because you are in Australia, uh, is that at least in Canada, we don't have, I mean, all of those 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 oil pits. I mean, that's a notion of the past. Coal pits, I mean, those are legit, um, but they put steam in the ground. It's like you don't even know that it's there in most cases. So, I mean, the, the technology's come so far, and I think that's where people are going, like, we've come so far with this. You know, why do we blow it up to start over again when, in fact, the consumption of the petroleum is more higher than ever just in general? So, like, there's so many things I think that really get people tangled up. And and it's funny because we're getting – they're tangled up for a reason because they're getting marketed a tangled message and they buy it. And you can't think what? critically and do your own research all day about all topics. There's a certain point where you have to actually believe people around you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's the issue as well is, you know, where are we fighting our fights? Are you, are you fighting your fight against a big oil company that honestly is not going to put itself out of business because that's the only way it could ever be sustainable is to shut its doors? No, of course they're not going to. So are, are your efforts, you're, you're very, you know, we have a limited, a limited amount of uh, effort that we can put towards things, limited capacity, limited sanity to put towards towards these things. So where are you focused? And is that focus actually going to be making a difference or are you pushing a proverbial crap uphill. Yeah. I don't know if we can curse on the show. Yeah. Well, we did say the title of your book, which is, uh, oh, you're is no true. bullshit, five-point plan for saving the planet. <laughs> and the uh, great greenwashing, how brands, governments, and influencers are lying to you. Um, here's here's one that we'll push off for a topic for next time. Let's plant the seed today, John Pavin, um, is that jobs. The new debt that we carry is too many jobs. And if you want to get into conspiracy theories, uh, I'm happy to take this one on or put this one out there. That tactically speaking, governments and businesses know that we have so many jobs and we have too many jobs and we can't keep up. And so that is a massive tactic in marketing. And, um, and I would say that we put that pin in that one, save yeah. that for later. And say, it's an issue close to my heart and something I've worked a lot on. So we can definitely ooh, talk about that. Even yeah. better. John Pabin joins us here um, on the shift. Thank you, brother. Great to see you. Likewise. Thanks. Talk next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 